in the in the scripture tucked into the book of Jeremiah uh, chapter 29 verse 11 uh, there's a promise that you may have heard but it's a promise for all of us together Jeremiah 29:11 says for surely I know the plans I have for you says the Lord plans for your welfare not for your harm to give you a future with hope. This is a promise that comes to us this morning as a promise, as a prophecy, as to what God will do for us together. See, oftentimes we come to this passage and we we like to use it to tell people God has a plan and a purpose for you, but sometimes what we forget is that the Bible wasn't written in English, but rather this part of the Bible was written in the Hebrew language. And if we were able to read it in the Hebrew, what you would find is it would say something more like this, surely I know the plans that I have for all of you as a nation of Israel. Surely I have plans for all of you together. The Bible was written for more than just one person, but rather for an entire people, for all who would believe. And this morning we begin a three-part sermon series And as you've seen the slide all morning long, it's about looking ahead. It's about the road ahead. It's that God is moving in this church, and God has been moving in this church. Whether it's through the worship experience that we have here on Sabbath morning, or whether it's through the small groups you've been a part of, the Sabbath school, or even the service that we've been doing reaching out to the community. Whether it be through the homeless feeding, or through giving toys, or through helping at the cold weather shelter. Whatever it is, God is doing something here And it's not what any one of us has done alone. And God is relying on each and every one of you to fulfill his mission and his calling for orange in the world that is around us. This sermon series is about what God has been at work revealing to myself, to our prayer warriors, and to our elders as to where God is moving us forward, how he is leading us and the path that God is asking us to take. This series is about the vision that God is asking us to see along with him. Will you pray with me? Oh God, lead us now as we, as we open up the scriptures, as we share some stories, and as we try to delve deeper in what you would have for us. My prayer now is that you would clear, Lord, all of the distractions that are in our minds. Lord, clear away the, the you know, some of us are going to the beach after church to to just fellowship with one another. Some of us are going to Pastor Amanda's. Others are staying here. Whatever it is, Lord, all of the cares of the world, would you just silence all of those things so that we would be the good soil to receive your word this morning. May you make us fully present to your spirit and to your truth now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to show you a picture. This is worship. Apparently, I think it's a Colts picture. I'm not really sure. I just Googled imaged it. But this is worship. Worship is what we do as a natural response to something we experience. I'll say that again. Worship is a natural response that you have to something that you experience. That's all it is. Worship is giving credit. Worship is kind of just glorifying and being happy for something that you have just experienced. It's a genuine response. So let me give you an example of this. 
This past week, we were um, actually our youngest, Gavin, won four tickets to an angel game. It wasn't just four ordinary tickets that, you know, where we're sitting in the outfield, but rather they were tickets, um, and, and they were from a friend of ours. It was a raffle that he won. They're season ticket holders, and we were in the 300 section. Uh, I think it was 320 to be exact. Now, some of you may not know what that means. Neither did I, because I'd never sat there before. But we were literally um, in between home plate and third base, okay, closer to home plate on the second level, right, or third level, but really the second level. It was the perfect seats. And in this section, people come and they serve you, right? They have waiters there, and it's dangerous because you're like, oh, yeah, I'll have ice cream, I'll have a hot dog, a pizza. At the end of the day, you end up spending more than you realize you were going to spend. But they're great seats. Now, this game in particular, uh, the angels, they weren't doing too, oh, you know, I actually have a picture of that. The angels weren't doing so hot, okay? Um, they were actually losing most of the game, and so I text um, Austin, our, our, our middle son, and I said, hey, seventh inning, middle of seventh inning, let's get out of here because I don't want to wait through all of this. This is painful. And he says, just wait till the middle of the eighth, right? So kids do. And okay, well, you, don't, you guys don't have school tomorrow. I have to go to work, but whatever. You know, it's a vacation day. So as a, as a game went on, I don't know if any of you watched, from what I hear, Kurt was there as well. And I, I believe you weren't there alone, Kurt. You were there with, with Darlene, okay? I didn't see them. As the game went on, it started getting better and better. The rally monkey started coming up on the screen because the angels started scoring runs. But as the angels started making any hits, a single, a double, a home run, whatever it is, the crowd just started going wild. Now, I, I don't like very loud things, but it, it was getting loud. And I was like, are you guys kidding me? They're still losing by four points. You guys are like ecstatic and this team is still losing. But you see, that was worship in one sense because it was their natural reaction to what they were experiencing, to what, what was in front of them. People were happy. People were standing up. And, I mean, people were literally standing up and cheering. People, you know, would lift their hands up. I even noticed myself doing that. I'm like, what am I doing? I don't... I'm a Yankee fan. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm, just kidding. I'm, I'm joking. I had, I had an angel jersey that day that I bought on sale because the guy doesn't play for them anymore, so... But in one way, and that's just, it's worship. Worship is our natural response and our natural reaction to what we've experienced. The problem is, is that I think worship has gone from something that we do to just an adjective. Now, I know Genevieve said a whole bunch of awesome stuff, and I wish I would have had that material beforehand. Um, but I think what we've done to worship is we've relegated it simply to just something of an adjective that describes something. So, you know, we think of, you know, worship music or a worship album. You know, we describe what we do here this morning as worship service. And I think what happens over time is we relegate the word worship to simply describe the things. Describes things. It's an adjective. When I, when I would argue that worship should actually be a thing that we do or a verb. Worship isn't a thing. It's what we actually do. And I would say this way, worship is your natural response to experiencing God. Worship is your response to any time you are encountered by God. We do this. You know, it's funny. I, um, 
when we go to ball games, when we go to concerts, whenever we go to any of these things, right, and we get so excited, we get happy, right? Like I said, sometimes we put our hands up. Sometimes, you know, we yell as loud as we can, and then the next day, you know, we can't really speak very well because we're losing our voice. We stay up way past, you know, I mean, we stay in a certain seat for three, four hours even. We sit in front of a television. This week, I, I woke up several times at three in the morning just to watch the French Open tennis, okay, one of the big grand slams of the year. We do dumb things for you know, we do dumb things for other dumb things. Does that make sense in the grand scheme of things? I love tennis, but I can live without it type of thing. And yet when we come to church, oftentimes we come and we sit and we sing songs. And some of us don't like to sing because we think we can't sing very well or somebody has told you you don't sing very well. And so you, you, try, to keep a t- you try to keep the tune or the key or the harmony. And what ends up happening is you don't really sing. And maybe your heart wants you to like, hey, maybe we should stand up for this song, but everyone's sitting, so I'm not going to look like a fool. Yeah, I'll gladly look like a fool at an angel game, but I'm not going to look like a fool in front of all my church friends. What we do naturally in other places, it seems like when we come to church, everything stops. We become fake life. And so one of the things that Genevieve said when she was leading us through worship along with us praising him from West Covina Church that we have here every month, She says, however you feel like worshiping God, do those things. If it means standing up, sitting down, praying, lifting your hands up, hey, sometimes I want to move a little bit because the music, it does something to me, and the Holy Spirit, it's doing something in me, but I don't because I fear (laughs) that the church members might be offended by something that I do. And what ends up happening is that even when I'm worshiping God, what I'm really thinking about in the back of my mind is what some of you might be thinking And I think that pains the the heart of God. Worship. It's not what we do to make other people feel better. Worship is what we do as a natural response to what God has been doing for you. Worship is a natural response to who God is. So I want to show you from the scripture in the book of Revelation what worship looks like in heaven at least according to John, the writer of the book of Revelation, as shown to him by Jesus. And it says, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside, day and night, without ceasing they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor, And thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, Jesus, the 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, singing, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things And by you and by your will, they existed and were created. The natural response to these four crazy-sounding animals, creatures, and the natural response to the 24 elders as they're seated around God is for them to fall before the throne and sing, Holy, holy, holy are you. Worthy is the Lamb. And so the question that I ask you is, what is your natural response 
to your experience and your encounter with God? What is your response? Not that long ago, or maybe a couple of years ago, I haven't met very many famous people. Actually, I haven't met any famous people. I've met a couple of pastors who in the pastor world can be kind of famous. Don't know if that makes sense to any of you. But this guy by the name of Rob Bell listened to his sermons for years and years, buy everything that he puts out, whether it's books, whether it's um, devotional DVDs, whatever he's done, I probably own most of those things or have read them or listened to them in one way or another. He's great. He's, he's done so many things. He's done some controversial things. That's okay, too. Uh, he said that hell's not really something that happens um, that lasts forever. Does that sound like something we believe in? Hell doesn't burn forever. But people didn't like what he said, and there was a huge firestorm of criticism. So I like this guy. I met him one time on my way to Denver to do a speaking engagement. I, I missed my flight. I was upset. I mean, I was early, but I was still upset. And I, from a distance, I see him. And I think I've told you this story. I saw him. I'm like, oh, I know that guy. It's one of those natural instinct reactions. So what do I do? I get through the security line as fast as I could while keeping my distance so he wouldn't think I was some kind of weirdo. And I kind of let him go and sit where he was going to sit. Sits down, opens his book, his family goes and gets some breakfast. It was 7 in the morning. So I, you know, stand at a distance. I'm kind of looking, pretending like I don't notice him. I have my coffee. And as I, you know, I, I walk by, and I'm like, hey, you're Rob Bell. He just looks like, oh, yeah. So we talked. He was gracious. He talked for an hour. I asked him question after question after question after question because that's what I do. Ask my wife. I ask tons of questions. And he was, he was great. And my natural reaction to that was to text all of my friends that are also, you know, who also like and are fans of the stuff that he's written and things that he's done. I texted all of them. I called some of them. I said, you'll never guess who I met. I mean, I was elated. I was happy. I sat down because I had a few hours before my flight, and I started writing about the conversation and the questions I asked him in the blog that I used to keep up on a, on a daily basis maybe five years ago. I was elated. I was happy. And so the thing, the question is, is, and I have to ask myself this, if it makes me this happier, I'm that excited to meet just a human, just a person, just like me who, one, one, who will one day die. If I'm that excited to meet this person, how excited do I get when I'm in the presence of God? How excited are you when you sit down and open up your Bible? I'm not even going to ask you how many of you actually open your Bible on a daily basis. Because the truth is, is I have a sense and I have a feeling that we don't get as excited when we encounter God. It doesn't make us as happy and it doesn't make us as elated as when we meet some rock star or some baseball player or football player or whatever it is. And I think the reason behind it is because somewhere, somehow we were told that those moments you're supposed to keep quiet. That we just, oh, we just accept it and we appreciate what God is doing. But I would say that it must be the opposite. And the Bible has a clear story and a clear teaching on how, in one way, we are allowed to react when we are in the presence of God. If we get that excited for human beings, how excited do you get when you come to the presence of God? When you pray or read scriptures, rather when you pray, do you ever just praise God for what God has done for you? The truth. Oftentimes I find myself that when I pray, I'm asking God for a laundry list of things that I need God to help me with because I need help with these things. And I need God to help me now. And so the question that I ask you, and it's something I have to force myself to do, is do you ever give praise for God for being the God who holds all things together, 
who breathed life into you and who continues to sustain you? Do you ever praise God and thank God that he sent his one son to lay his life down for you and I who really are not, let's just face it, we're just not really that worthy of that sacrifice? Do you thank God for being merciful merciful and forgiving and gracious? Do you give thanks and praise to God for his goodness and for adopting you as his very own child? Do you give praise and thanks to God? For simply being alive. You see, that's the real question we have to start asking because I think for some of you and for some of us at some point in our lives, the reason we don't give praise to God is because we're too busy asking God for the next thing. And it becomes a question of how do you see God? Do you see God as the creator, life-giving God of the universe or do you simply see God as the cosmic Santa Claus that is just supposed to grant you every wish that you desire? something you have to wrestle with. Because if we're honest, I don't know that we just see God as worthy of praise for everything that he continually does for us. So to break that last passage down, it's the best picture I could find. The four living creatures, right? It says they have six wings and eyes all around them and they have different kinds of faces. The book of Revelation does that funny thing where it it puts all of these different symbolic things in there, which is why it's so difficult for people to understand and interpret the book of Revelation because there's so many symbols and metaphors that people can't ever agree on that. But one of the things that people do agree on is that these four living preachers were probably exalted angels there simply to serve and worship God. So they were the highest of the highest of angels and all they do is worship God because that is their natural response to who God is. And the 24 elders, according to Ranko Stefanovich, which is, uh, he wrote a commentary, one of the leading Adventist um, um, teachers in the book of Revelation, who is at the seminary now, who teaches there. He says that the 24 elders are most likely glorified saints who are symbolic representatives of the redeemed and the faithful people of God of both the Old and the New Testament. So it is symbolic of all who will believe, all who have believed. And their natural response to being in the presence of God is that they cast down their crowns, right? The one thing, right? Bling, as we say in this time and in this place, the crowns made of gold with jewels, whatever is on them. The thing that if I had would be pretty valuable. For them being in the presence of God, they just cast them down. They say, I don't care about any of this because I'm in the presence of God. So I want to show you one story as we move towards wrapping up. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 12 through 16, says this, Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So really quickly, um, David, the King David at the time, sends the ark of the covenant, which I have a picture of in just a few slides, um, and he sends it to Obed-Edom because if you touched this and you weren't allowed to touch it, there was only four people, the high priests, who were allowed to touch this. If you weren't allowed to touch the ark of the covenant, you would die. It was a sense of respect, of holiness, of sacredness. Somebody touched it. King David got scared because they died, so they sent it off to the other city. Just in case somebody else touches it, it's not going to be any one of us. But what happens in the process is that God blesses Obed-Edom, this city, this other people. He blesses them so much that David says, well, why should we send away the blessing of God? We want God's blessing on us. So he comes back. Okay, so that's what's happening. 
So David went to bring, the, the, bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Imagine how long that procession was. Every six steps, there was a sacrifice to God. David, wearing a linen ephod, so just like, you know, a linen shirt, kind of dress of some sort, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. While he and the entire house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him with her heart. So this is just a a representation of what the ark might have looked like. But more than it just being something that is sacred is it represented God's presence. It was, in essence, a substitute of God's presence as blessing has come upon this place. And David's natural response was to dance with joy, to strip down to just like a linen dress of sorts. Yeah, not really a dress, but just a long shirt maybe. And dance before the Lord. He made himself look like a fool. The story continues. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. So she straight says, what you just did in worshiping and in praising God is what a vulgar fellow would do. The opposite of reverence, right? The opposite of modesty. She says, you're just like a vulgar fellow. And David's response to this, I think, is classic. David said to her, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord, and I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children (laughs) to the day of her death. Bad punishment. But David's response is, okay, I look like a a vulgar fellow. Okay, I will be even more undignified and I will humiliate myself in front of whoever you think I'm humiliating myself because my dance and my celebration and my worship was for God, not for you. Amen. It wasn't for you. What David shows us, at least in this part of Scripture, is it doesn't matter what other people will think or say of you. Because if you're living a life that is filled with worship for God, who cares? Let me give you another example from the real world. Have you ever seen a football player score a game-winning touchdown? They do all kinds of crazy dances, right? Weird, crazy dances. Sometimes they're asked, did you plan that before? And some of them are like, no, it's just what came out of me at the time. I was so happy. The middle picture, as always, I'm a tennis fan, so I like watching tennis. I like to play. 
Um, this one particular tennis player, after winning a tournament he was never supposed to win, it was such a long shot, Rafael Nadal, he can play on clay, but he can't play on any other surface. This was a couple years ago. His natural reaction to celebrating was to climb up 10 or 15 feet of signs and boards and whatever it was, or 10 feet maybe, to get to his family to be able to celebrate because of what he had just done. He looks like a crazy guy climbing up there. In baseball, after you do a home run, a walk-off home run, as they call it, the dugouts, they clear, they cheer, they're happy. You know, and, and us as fans, we're like, yeah, you know, we're cheering right there with them. And yet when it comes to God, I, as the pastor of the church who has been called to serve God, sometimes I get embarrassed to lift my hands up because the people might think I'm kind of crazy. But what we find in the Scriptures What God gives you and I permission to do is as we worship and as we praise God, he gives us permission to let what naturally flows out of us be a part of our worship. Because worship isn't about you and it isn't about me. It's about what we're giving to God. Worship is about what you bring to God, not what you get out of it. Okay, so I know I'm going. I got a few more minutes to go, so stay with me. The problem with worship is that we often have made worship about what we can get out of it rather than what we are coming to bring to God. What happens is that we then get really, really picky about the worship that happens. And what ends up happening is we relegate the word worship to describe what happens up here. And so the problem with worship is that we get so nitpicky and we begin to criticize what's happening up here that worship isn't about what happens here. It's about what happens in your heart and what comes out of your mouth. Worship is not a service. Worship is what you do as an individual. And the reason people begin to criticize is because they don't like this and they're not getting fed. But worship is not about you being fed. It's about giving to God what he's been feeding you all week. Worship is when we gather together almost as fans, but more than a fan of who God is. To scream and shout, kind of. To raise our voices to the God that is in our presence and in our midst. Worship is what we give to God. Because God has given us so much. And so regardless of what happens here, this is just, this is just a way to help us to worship. And we try to meet every, you know, we try, to, we try to worship in all the different ways that we know how because we all have different upbringings. And so we do all of this, but rather worship is pointless of all of this. It's just about what you are bringing to God. And what God sees is what you're giving to Him. And so this morning, the first part of the vision of the church is to love God need to get rid of those pictures because you're going to be distracted. Love God. The purpose of us gathering here together is to fall more in love with God because we are here with a common interest to lift up the name of Jesus and we do so with all of our might, with all of our hearts, with all of our souls. The first part of the vision is to love God and to love God means to worship God. And we all worship God in different ways. So when you come here on Saturday mornings, we're just asking that you bring 
everything that God has given you, and you just, as the elders before the throne, you cast down the crown, and you say, God, everything you've given, we give back to you. God doesn't give a little and then take it a little. God just continues to flow. God's goodness and grace continues to flow into your life, and what we do in worship and what we ask you to do here is to just allow all that God has given you to make you happy and joyous and praise God. What we do here on Saturday mornings. Although I said it's not about what happens here, to be faithful to God, we do everything that we can to make sure that every little bit is planned perfectly because in essence, it's as though we are performing for God, not for you. We put this on, the celebration for God because God is good and God is worthy and God is holy. We gather here and we invite you to come back on a weekly basis because we want to give that honor and that praise to God. We do it for everything else. Right? If we were to ask how many hours you, know, you spend watching sports or television, how many hours you, know, you spend laughing in front of a television, that's a sort of worship. How many hours you spend, myself included, watching sporting events, that's a sort of worship. How many hours you spend doing all those other things. There's tons of hours in the week. And what we're asking for you to do is to come back for a couple hours one day a week so that we can worship the one who is worthy and holy. And so I want to end with this last passage in Scripture in Isaiah chapter 29. God is always speaking to the, to the Israelites through the prophet, and this is what God says, and this is what I want us to avoid as at, at the Orange SDA Church. It says, The Lord said, Because these people draw near with their mouths, and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their worship of me is a human commandment learned by rote. Learning something by rote is learning your times tables. And I think sometimes worship becomes that way. We memorize the right times to stand and the right times to sit. We memorize the placement of everything in our worship service, and if anybody dares to change it, that is heresy. And God's like, no, it's not. You need to change things up. Because if you're worshiping me, it's not just about calling it in. I think sometimes we just call it in on Saturday morning. Now, with the advent of smartphones, <laughs> some of you are just calling it in because you're just like, oh, God, I want to see what they left me on Facebook or on Twitter or the sports news or whatever it is. We call worship in because it's easy. We, we go to another Adventist church somewhere in another part of the world and we can pretty... Be sh we can pretty well be sure that everything is going to be in the exact same order. And what we at Orange must do is, no, we must worship God authentically, genuinely. And if it requires us to change some things every once in a while, we will because we are worshiping God. We will do so in a nice and kind way with people's minds and thoughts. That's important to us, okay? It matters what you guys think. But at the same time, we must worship the Lord with what he is worth. And what God is worth is our very best. That's all we can give. And so a part of our vision for the Advent, the, the Orange, I'm sorry, Seventh-day Adventist Church, is that we learn to love God better, better than we ever did. And when we get to that better place, to love God even more and better than that. Worship, to love God is to empty ourselves of all that God has given us all week on Saturday morning to, to praise and worship God and to cheer for God as we would any of our favorite athletes. 
Because in all truth, only God is truly worthy of our very best and of our worship. Amen. I warned the praise team as we were warming up earlier that I might get emotional at the song, I See the Lord. And it happens every time because I know I'm not worthy to be in front of his throne. I'm a sinner. But because of his love and his mercy, he allows me to be there. He allows me to be in front of his throne. This is a song of response that we want to invite you to join with us. Holy, holy, give him the glory. Holy. 